Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You are a frustrating opponent. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, this is almost certainly my very last episode of Very Bad Wizards. Have you picked out a new co-host yet? I think we all know that it was always going to be Paul. <laughs> <laughs> it's what the listeners I mean, want. It's it's what you want. As I should rotate Paul and Sam Harris. <laughs> I think that'll be the best. Sam Harris for the numbers. Well, and, and Sam for the dreaminess too. There's a little yeah. dreaminess factor that can't be the can't Ben Still the Ben Stillerness. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we uh, uh, a couple of listeners pointed out that, and and I will say that this is more me. Keep sort of nudging our Sam Harris listeners in a way that almost is yeah, like a boy. You've become a troll. You've become a troll. I think. Yeah, well, I mean, it was because I put that up on the Facebook page, you know, to sort of the, to uh, promote the fact that we were doing a Pascal's Wager episode, and they all just got so mad. And, they didn't all get mad. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I do this with my family. Like, if I know that something's going to, if, like, I can say something and they'll get really upset and mad, I'm just going to pound that into the into the ground until they actually get mad at me and then I'll they're, stop. They're, fe- they're feeding the trolls every time they react <laughs> to you. So another thing, remember in the last episode you said that um, that you sometimes take flack for opinions that I... Strong, pro- yeah, yeah. It's like they average the opinion and since yours are stronger, it's sort yeah. of like I sort of get just a, yeah. But then... We also said that sometimes I get flack for things we agreed on. That totally happened with this Pascal Wager thing. So I don't know what position we came down on Pascal's Wager, but somehow every email we get and every interaction is like, Tamler really buys Pascal's Wager. And I just got that into, like, like you know, it's like my intuition. Intuition. That's all I care it's about a- is intuition. He, uh and it's like, no, I don't. Like, the whole point, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. How could I be convinced by Pascal's right. wager? But still, yeah. I get shit for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people think you're a Republican theist who is um, <laughs> probably racist and definitely sexist. And you just have, you haven't cultivated the the sort of the, the reasonable-ishness of my tone. Yeah. You know? But, you know, you do often uh praise your intuition 
So no, I don't. Yeah, we, we can't feel too sorry for you. Uh, uh, what are we talking about today? So in the second segment, the big segment, we are going to talk about our favorite revenge movies, our top five revenge movies. This is one that we've been that's been requested for by by a few listeners over the course of many years. We've always hesitated to do it because I think we think we talk about revenge all the time yeah it's all it's almost a funny sort of one of these memory intrusion errors where we talk about movies we talk about revenge we've definitely talked about movies that have revenge in them so it feels to me like when you suggested i was like wait didn't we do this already and it and it turns out no we have not no um right and i don't even think we talk about revenge that much it's just no (laughs) it's the first two episodes or something like that no the the, the next two yeah yeah exactly um yeah (laughs) <laughs> so anyway, that's what we're doing in the second segment. In the first segment, I just came across this today from Justin Weinberg's daily news site. He has it's you know it's related to revenge, but it's on uh, the Passover Seder. And what we are really celebrating when we do, or when we I, conduct the Seder, when by if, we you mean you mean your people? I mean yes, you, the, you mean. the chosen people. <laughs> Um, and it's surprising to me that this is the first that you've had a crisis of conscience, well, that you've even well, thought about this potential. Um, I thought about this it. as potential to talk about on on the podcast. I, I can't say that, you know, this is something that has made me deeply re-examine uh, how I approach each Passover but it's 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 kind of an interesting piece. So if it was an eon piece, it would say that all Jews should uh, take a stand right now and refuse to conduct a seder ever again because of the deeply immoral message, or they should you know, adopt know. an Egyptian baby. Adopt I think that that's <laughs> the way to me. It's reparations. It's reparations. reparations. <laughs> so the story, Adopted I mean, it's... Window, <laughs> but only a male Jewish baby. <laughs> right. And they but, have to be the oldest uh, sibling. But it is... So growing up, whenever you did Seder, you did... I mean, it was acknowledged that this, you know, the word Passover means that the, the angel of God passed over the families of, of the Jew, the Jewish families um, and didn't kill the firstborn, but killed the firstborn of all Egyptians. Was it Was it discussed? So here's the the way it goes as you're growing up as a Jew, um, struggling with persecution daily from people like you. <laughs> you have your Seder, you go through the plagues, you drop a, bo- a drop of wine, and you are told that this is because this stuff is sad. You pour out a little for the Egyptians. Yeah. That, that, or or like that, for the frogs. For the that, frogs. That's, that's where <laughs> for it the comes countless. from. We feel bad about the frogs and the locusts. You know all the locusts? It's like a holocaust of locusts. <laughs> they gave their lives. You know, we get to the killing of the firstborn, and it's definitely something that we think, whoa, you know, that's a little fucked up. But I think the way I remember it is, it's more fucked up in the sense that, man, that pharaoh was stubborn. Right, um, right, right, right. <laughs> he made, he made, like he, he like, made us have to do this. It's like Joe Pesci, like yelling at the guy in Casino that he's like torturing and putting in a vice. He's like yelling at him for like, I can't believe you're making me do this. That's how we felt. You've made us do this. We didn't want to do this. What's great is that in that story, um, 
it it's it actually says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so I that he would. <laughs> I was just gonna say it's way worse than this guy who's writing this portrays it. <laughs> and this is where this is where some sort of Frankfurt Frankfurtian analysis would matter. Like if it's like, well, yeah, sure, but but Pharaoh didn't mind that his heart was being hardened. He kind of embraced it. <laughs> God actually hardens his heart and so, so that he'll say no after each plague that he won't let his people go so it's really just a facade this whole thing is just a farce of moses going to ask pharaoh to let his people go and god is intentionally hardening his heart so that he won't say yes and yeah it's a frankfurt thing maybe that, that's how people try to spin it but <laughs> but yeah it's really bad and as the uh as the author of this piece puts it and it's called the price of freedom it's on the Oscar avery kohler's yeah, University of Louisville professor. He writes, Then finally, after life has lost all meaning and purpose, when there is nothing left to live for, comes the killing of the firstborn son in Egypt. Picture the parents, beaten into submission, emaciated, covered in boils, that's one of them, not knowing how many more plagues there might be. They may have felt that death was a mercy, wishing their child's escape has had come sooner at wishing their ch wishing their child's escape had come sooner this is the tamler stroke segment <laughs> this, this is a night episode people so bear with me it's one of my last few days on earth it's an interesting question because i think that like my particular sect of of christianity is all for it like i was actually raised perhaps even more than you with zero thought as to the actions the the, the nasty actions of the old testament god for us like we were like yeah because obviously like the jews were, were god's chosen people like yeah. it wasn't until you know i started reading on my own this is this is i, I gotta say my favorite of all the revenge stories in the old testament uh, which i may have mentioned in passing before it's the story of dinah oh do you God. know this? <laughs> i talk about this in my book <laughs> it's genesis 34 and it's like ba basically it's not even clear whether dinah slept with the canaanites or got raped by them or was just like you know she was kidnapped by that's for sure well maybe but i you know I mean, whatever, whatever the, the case I don't know. <laughs> Whatever like, the so uh, this is so so the Canaanites were, were you know basically just basically Phoenicians like the Arabs. Um, they say to Jacob, uh, they're like, "Do we we really like we really like your daughters? Why why don't we do this? Why don't like you let us marry them and you can marry our daughters and like we're, we'll all be cool." <laughs> so they so the the sons of Jacob say say sure you know we just have this little so they tell so they tell the the Canaanites, the that they just have to get circumcised and then everything will be copacetic. Yeah. <laughs> like, so they, on the third day after these these guys are recovering from their circumcision, they just go in and kill them all. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> just a massacre. Like, first of all, just, which is, it is the greatest revenge act because you're making them cut their own penises, lie <laughs> around in pain for two days, and then just get killed. Yeah, well, you know, not not their pe not their whole penises, but yes. But, but the end of the story is what's so fascinating. Jacob is mad at the sons. He says, "Why are you like? Why did you do this? Mm -hmm. This is now everybody's going to be against us, and we could have had all this money, and we could have, and now we're going to be running for our lives." And the brothers, yeah. this is just their only response to that is, 
like a whore they should treat our sister. <laughs> exactly. It's AKA not about Israel. like our money or our safety. It's no. like, no, you don't do that to our sister. Yeah. It's and it's you know, it's particularly distressing if Dinah happened to be like okay with with it. But um like if it's violent rape, then I, I can muster more of the like of Oh, the so you're sav- not you're on savory revenge. Well, it's it's totally like it's really underspecified whether it was rape or whether it was as as is common in some honor cultures, whether it was just defilement. Just sleeping with the the daughter could be what required the killing of the men. I, I um, don't think it's that ambiguous that at least initially she was taken by force. Well, I will leave it to the exegesis of the scholars. Um, what is it, uh, Genesis 34? 34, yeah. Uh, Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler saw her, he took her and raped her. I mean, like how... How, uh, like how like how explicit do you like wh- what do you need? Um, are, you, are you suggesting so, that she and yeah the way- no no it, it matter it matters what translation you're using. So some of them say took her and lay with her and humble to her, right? And uh, and so so because I'm not a speaker. Are you saying of, that language Hebrew, is different depending <laughs> on the <laughs> translation? I mean, is this some like wharf hypothesis? Isn't this like, no, it's just simply like, I don't know biblical Hebrew, which I assume you had to learn. All right. Well, back to, um, that's interesting that it, it could have just been that they hooked up or something. Yeah. Um, that yeah. does change my, back to this. I think there's a sort of interesting question about how progressive you want to make your Seder. So some people, he writes, put an orange on the Seder plate to symbolize the emancipation of women. Why an orange? I do not. <laughs> it's just round. So, like, recently, some have used ass, a tomato actually. to symbolize the struggle of farm workers in contemporary America. Yeah. Uh, and many now use an olive to mark the oppression of Palestinians under a state that purports to act in the name of all the Jews in the world. So so there's this question of, are, does does this story now mean celebrating the emancipation of everybody and certainly you know uh people who have been slaves including african-american slaves have used this story as kind of an emancipation a source of inspiration the question that the piece ends with is whether we should celebrate what the israelis did or atone for it it's an interesting question. I have two sort of reactions to it. My first reaction might be, you're missing the point of a ritual like this. It's not to discuss the ethics of throwing frogs on people and drowning them in the Red Sea and killing firstborns. It's a story that's meant to, you know, cement the bonds of the Jewish people. But then at the same time, it is something that we are supposed to talk about we are supposed to ask about like the seder itself you know there's so many uh points in the seder where you're supposed to reflect on actually being those people and so i think it is a totally legitimate question to what extent this is something that's celebration worthy so i have both those reactions that in some ways trying to impose 
21st century liberal values on the Seder is just hope it's just a hopeless and a kind of a mismatched way of engaging with an activity. On the other hand, maybe it's not that mismatched because the Seder itself is trying to get people to reflect on issues in this like, like this in this genre. Yeah, I think that my initial reaction is that traditions that last this long last this long because they are uh, not only ties to the past, but they are easily infused with meaning that's relevant um, in modern times. So part of the reason that the story resonates with people, even if you're not a Jew, um, even as a Christian who, or as a black slave in the South or something, the, the story of being liberated from oppressors is a glorious one. Now, are you being an ass because you don't pour out some wine um, for the Egyptians who died, you know, whatever, no, you 5,000 do pour years out ago? Wine. Yeah, well. but if you, do, if you don't, this is what I'm uh. saying. <laughs> like, are, you, are you an ass if you don't have the olive branch because of today's modern Palestinians? I think that's, that, again, is the whole point. The, the, from an external perspective, to me, what I admire about these Jewish traditions in particular is that they raise questions and you're allowed to ask the questions and you're allowed to have this discussion and you're encouraged to have the discussion. And there's nothing wrong, I think, with having the discussion about like, what about the backs on which we built our our society that's evident in, in scripture or whatever? You mean why, why not? <laughs> exactly. But like if, if it raises questions in your family, like with your kids, then cool, good. I think it should be talked about. Oppression is not, it's, it's not, it's, doesn't belong to anyone. <laughs> yeah, I, I like, you know, this was a piece that I was prepared to not like, one of those Eon pieces that's just right. trolling people, but I actually think it's it's well done. Yeah, well done. It reached even my hardened heart. <laughs> you know, by the way, the the, uh, the the orange for women and the olive branch for Palestinians reminded me of this, I'll put this link, <laughs> this some website called The Hard Times, which I take it as satire. The headline is Progressive Family Unable to Finish Game of Guess Who. Do you know, remember that game where there's a bunch of characters and you have to ask each other questions about what they right. look like? <laughs> game night at the Robinson house ended in a tie on Thursday when the left-leaning family tried to play the classic Guess Who board game using yes or no questions and deductive reasoning to describe and match various pictures of human face. Is your person, uh, and I'm making a lot of unfair assumptions here, a man? Ask Mr. Robinson <laughs> before apologizing profusely. <laughs> I remember this game being easier as a child. <laughs> Uh, After an allegedly reprehensible question by young Teddy, however, all members of the Robinson household over the age of 12 responded by shouting, race is a social construct and nodding in unison. Teddy was <laughs> reportedly forced to sit out and watch for the rest of the night. <laughs> uh, it's the Oberlin version of that. Yeah. All right, let's take a break um, and we will get darker talking darker. about our favorite revenge movies. We'll be right back. It's about being human. Being human. ourselves in binary terms, whether good or bad. 
We're the same the world over. It's about being human. big lesson. We're not different. We're the same the world over. It's about being human. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Um, this is the time when we like to take a moment to thank all of the support you guys have given us. I um, said I would mention this in, in support. Uh, Tamler's opening joke about this being his last episode is is due to the fact that he's going to be writing, what, like, a thousand miles this coming weekend for your ride 15, to MS. A thousand miles over two days. No, that's what it's going to feel like on the second day when we're going into yeah. an 18 mile an hour headwind. Right. Um, right. And we, we put up a link to to the support. Um, no, it's too late. If you by the time to, this it, comes out, it will by be. By the time open. this comes out, it's too late. Well, too late. so thank you for those of you who did, <laughs> who did donate. Um, thank you for all. Uh, we've gotten a lot of good. We gotten some cool new iTunes reviews. Um, yeah, really, really nice. Recently. Yeah, really nice. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like iTunes just holds onto them and then unleashes them like yeah. all at a time. Um, Seems like so. That if you'd like, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail .com. You can post uh, on our Facebook page, which is always pretty active discussion. You can tweet to us at verybadwizards, at Tamler, at Peas. Um, if you would like to support us in more tangible, material ways, uh, you can go to our support page on our Very Bad Wizards website, and there you can see a link to our Patreon page, which thank you to all our Patreon supporters. Um, that is, that is, that really has made this life. We always joke about it, keeping the lights on, but in some ways it really does get us through some of the harder recordings yeah. when we're like, you know what? We can't let you guys down. We really, we really appreciate that, it. it um, totally true. Like there are times where, and this is one of them actually, where, mm -hmm. <laughs> where it's like, there's uh, the end of the semester. We feel like we have so much stuff to do already. And our families are <laughs> called for currently our being ignored. <laughs> the Patreon, the Amazon, the Amazon money, we, you can click on the Amazon link. PayPal, oh, we got a really generous just one-time PayPal donation. Also, for yeah. Patreon, as a f number of listeners has have pointed out, for whatever reason, when you search Very Bad Wizards on Patreon, our site doesn't come up if you search through Patreon. But you can always just go to patreon.com slash verybadwizards and then the link on our webpage works for that right. too. Yeah. So so thank you all for for your very generous support. We really appreciate it. And and the feedback, just the the content is is really fun. You guys keep us on our toes. Uh, so you're the you're the movie guy. So tell me um, what you were thinking about criteria. Here's what I realized as I was going through this list. I actually don't love revenge movies as much as no, I... No, I had the same feeling. And I was actually literally just thinking about this. I was like, is it that I used to love them more? And as I'm getting older, like the revenge porn kind of movies are not doing it for me. Yeah. And and I don't know if that's the answer or if the answer is... Um, 
that in fact I never really liked that many of them. I just enjoyed a few very, very good ones. Yeah. So there's there's like three or four and, and many of these are ones that don't get to make my list, but right. there are certain movies that have revenge as a core theme that I love. Um, but surprisingly, like this was in in some ways easy list to make because it wasn't like I felt like I had 15 that had to be on this list. Right. I really don't. I, I'm wondering to what extent this storytelling genre translates to to film. But let's talk about what exactly makes a revenge movie. So first of all, what did we rule out? We, uh, You have a great analogy. At the very end of Wheel of Fortune, uh, the winner gets to play alone, and they have to guess one clue, and they're allowed to pick five letters. And early on, people realized that they could just pick the most frequent letters. And so everybody would say R-S-T-L-N-E, R-S-T-L-N-E. And so after a while, they realized that this was actually just making for very boring TV. So they gave everybody R-S-T-L-N-E. They just put it aside. Gave them those and then said, okay, now pick five other letters. So, for so instance, what, what were uh, your RSTLNE movies? The one we did talk about, which is one of probably yours, would have been yours, is Old Boy, because that yeah. is just quintessentially yeah. sort of. And I feel like revenge. everybody knows that Old Boy is a great revenge movie, like right. maybe the bet one of the one of the top five, clearly. And right. so, there's no point in us confirming that. Right. And on, on mine, so I don't know if it's if it made your list, but is the Kill Bills. So I, I think that Kill Bill is is uh, is, too, is was was too obvious for me. Yeah. Right. But, but was that any Tarantino too it. obvious for you? What about Inglorious Bastards and, Jan- and Django? For non RSTL any reasons, I didn't have either of those two on. Yeah. Um, what uh, Django because it got a little too revenge porny for me and not substance. Yeah enough and um and then for inglorious bastards i'm anti-semit now because you because you don't like jews yeah. no I, yeah I, I thought actually maybe you would have it on so so it would have definitely it was an rstlne movie for me yeah. although right, right, right. it that will be ironic uh given <laughs> right. one of the movies on my list princess yeah, yeah, yeah. bride was another um Okay, yeah. So I, I, I would have put that on, um, but, but I, it was also one of my maybe nots because it was. was I think we like talked about it in the revenge episodes that we did. A lot of lists have straw dogs, but I don't think that's a revenge movie. So a, we've talked about it. So anything that we've talked about, Memento is an example. Like Memento and Unforgiven might have made uh, uh, Unforgiven, Unforgiven hundred percent would have made, would have yeah, made yeah, my sure. list. Memento might have made my list, but yeah. we've already talked about them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Straw Dogs isn't a revenge <laughs> movie, and I don't know what it's doing on all those lists, other than people just want to say if how great I, it is. If I didn't have an extreme aversion to talking about that movie, I would argue that it is, but I'm not going to cuz I'd rather talk about other movies. <laughs> so, <laughs> listeners, here's a here's a challenge and a request. I want to do a bet with Pizarro where if I win the bet, he has to watch Straw Dogs again with an open mind. Uh, and if I and if I win, well, th- that's what to. the listener has to decide. Something like that. <laughs> oh, okay. Or you can. And then they have to decide what the bet is. Uh, okay. I think those were my only RSTLNEs. Because yeah. there are some that, that, that might qualify, but not from you. Part of, part of it was game theory about what both you and I would consider 
Do you think we'll have overlap? Uh, no. Okay. No. So here's what I think makes a good revenge movie. I don't like pure revenge porn for the most part. Yeah. So like yeah. John it's Wick. Like, it's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. John, John Wick was just a bad movie. I don't know why people like it. I, I thought I, I actually yeah. thought it was a good, it was a fine movie, but it's not like it wouldn't come close to making this list. Taken right. is another one of those. Yeah. Not sure it's a revenge a movie. movie but th- yeah, those right. kinds of movies for what, like the, I think people would think that I would be all into them, but I'm yeah. actually not. What what to me makes a great revenge movie is the moral ambiguity. Uh, yeah. Movies that explore the moral ambiguity of revenge. And actually, this is like Unforgiven is the quintessential example of this. And Clint Eastwood in general, I think, although people think of him as kind of a Western hero, like a John Wayne character, I don't think anybody is more interested in exploring the moral ambiguity. Anybody who's more ambivalent about revenge than Clint Eastwood and his movies. You know, to me, that's like Unforgiven is in some ways maybe the greatest revenge movie because it is it doesn't take sides. It doesn't celebrate it. It doesn't condemn it. It right. just shows it in its moral complexity. Yeah, you know, and I, and I think that one of the reasons that um that so I agree with everything you said about the the dislike for revenge porn. I mean, you know, maybe in a TV show every once in a while it's nice to see someone's ass get beat if they deserved it or whatever, but I yeah. I I find it tiring to have a whole movie um unless there are other virtues of that movie like old boy you could argue you know his some of those fight scenes are just amazing but there's I also plenty of ambiguity yeah yeah yeah, yeah so may, you know maybe i think early listeners when when we were defending revenge i think what we were we, we weren't really what we were arguing was that it gets a bad rap um <laughs> so maybe we should just jump into it because yeah let's we'll, do it uh, all right you want to go first so my my first movie is um, something that I don't suspect you'll care to talk about, but it is a great movie, and it is about revenge. I already know what villain- this is. Yeah, you do. It's The Wrath of Khan. Um, yeah. The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> have you seen it? No, but I have yeah. my friend Ed was telling me that this would be a good... I, I feel like this was one that would, if you were someone else, would be on the RSTLNE because it is an obvious right. revenge movie. But I knew that you, that that I could get away with talking about Star Trek for a few minutes, um, and so I wanted to. There's it. nothing so, I can do. Yeah. So the Wrath of Khan is a good movie for a lot of reasons, some of which don't have anything to do with revenge. Um, the The stage is set sort of 15 years after the original series. Um, where Captain Kirk has moved on and he now has a desk job and he's worried about aging. A lot of the themes are about death and life and, and sort of the, the aging Star Trek crew. But the central plot is essentially um, a justified villain who is seeking revenge on Captain Kirk. And the villain is, is it really is one of the great movie villains. Um, it's hard to be a, a movie villain of this this sort without lapsing into just just you know some parody of villainy. Um, but Ricardo Montalban, the the Spanish uh, actor who from I Bansy love Island, him. Yeah, I absolutely great. love Ricardo he's Montalban. Great. Weirdly cast fifteen years uh, fifteen years before this movie in this random Star Trek episode where the plot was. There was a breed of genetically. There was a group of genetically altered human beings that had been altered in, actually, 1996, <laughs> on their timeline, and because uh, genetically altering people was outlawed, 
they basically cast them away. Um, and Kirk, in his sort of mercy, just put him and his group of genetically altered, like super intelligent, super strong human beings um, who viewed themselves as superior to humans. He put them on a planet um, just to sort of live their lives on this planet. It was like the Australia of, of uh, space. <laughs> <Right. laughs> and uh, this movie picks up 15 years later. They come upon a planet um, that is barren and desolate. And for things I won't get into, they were looking for a barren and desolate planet to terraform. And turns out that uh, uh, a little bit after they dropped them off, this this planet's orbit was knocked out by some disaster and it turned into this barren, horrible, windy desert desert place. And so they've actually been living this in just really suffering life uh, for the last 15 years where um, they're barely scraping together. And only because of their intelligence, the sort of superhuman intelligence and strength have they even survived. Of course, for 15 years, and you see on, on Khan's bookshelf in this like little trailer that is essentially the, the remnants of the ship that crashed there, um, he has uh, Moby Dick. Yeah. And Moby Dick is exactly what this is. is. Uh, this is a Moby Dick that is, Kirk is the, the white whale for, the white whale, for Khan. Yeah. Yeah. So Khan uh, is just hell-bent on finding Kirk and avenging uh, the, the death of his, his friends who died in, in this accident, but also for, the, for having left them. And so one of the reasons that I think this movie is so good is because the villain is understandable. Like from his perspective, it really is the case that he was abandoned sort of for 15 years on this horrible planet. Um, and I don't think that we would begrudge his desire for vengeance. It just turns out that he's also, you know, like pretty uncaring and and also very very smart. So he makes for a really good villain. But his um, but his desire for revenge is like Ahab completely takes control of him, and it is in his his singular focus on getting revenge that he makes mistakes that Kirk's Kirk then can capitalize on. Um, um, this was an intelligent, kind of justified villain who is hunting Kirk singularly. And the only reason I think we root for Kirk is because the story is told, because we're our emotional ties with right. him. I think you could tell the story very, very easily from from Khan's side. This um, is what my friend said about it is it is a righteous avenger in some ways, or at least it's a sympathetic avenger, and yet you still find yourself rooting for the vengeance not to happen. Yeah, and it's like, well, yeah, it's not like what's Kurt going to do? Just let himself be killed because from his perspective, he, you know, he thought he did the merciful thing. He didn't know yeah. that this happened, but he never checked up either. It was kind of negligent, but he's not going to just lay down and die. Um so you end up rooting for Kirk even though you know, Kirk Yeah, that is a an interesting kind of revenge story where you see the Avenger's point, but you're not rooting for the Avenger. And in right. fact, it's rare that you're not rooting for the Avenger, period. Exactly. But what's exceptionally rare is when you're not rooting for the Avenger and you still think that the Avenger has a point. Yeah, and he's not a monster. Like, it's very easy to make villains kind of monstrous. Like, he's, you yeah. know, Ricardo Montalban, he's charming, he's very smart. It's not. It's not at all obvious that he doesn't deserve some sort of compensation for his, the horrible suffering that he's gone through. So he's he's not a monster. So he's not a cheap. He's not a cheap villain. And he's Ricardo fucking Montalban. Montalban. He's the man. Rich, rich Corinthian leather. 
<laughs> he is so good in the Naked Gun. Like, I think he's the most oh, shit, underrated aspect of the Naked Gun. Without his performance, that movie is half as funny. <laughs> I totally forgot. I haven't seen the Naked Gun in a long time. Oh, you gotta see the Naked right. Gun. All right, my number five. I chose all of my movies based on the various aspects of revenge that it could bring out. So mm-hmm. my number five movie brings out the the very ugly side of revenge. So this movie that I'm talking about is High Plains Drifter. It is written by Ernest Tideman, direct. Never seen it. So it's it's Clint Eastwood's second movie. And it's a really interesting, like very surreal movie, like literally surreal. Like there's, it's 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 definitely. I guess this is a spoiler. I'm not sure how you can spoil this or not. It's it, it's not clear at the end of the movie whether Clint Eastwood is a real person or somebody that's brought back from the dead. But he plays a very Clint Eastwood-like character, like a man with no name kind of character. In fact, right. he doesn't have a name. He's the stranger. He's called the stranger. I was going to ask you if it was a man with no name. It's, a, it's unclear which ones are man with no names. No, it's not. It's the Sergio Leone movies. But anyway, so, um, so he comes into this town. Within, I don't know, the first act of the movie, he has shot three people who had it coming, and then he he rapes a woman. He takes a woman and he rapes her, and then he stays in the town, and he he has a dream, and in the dream, a man is lying on the ground in the same position that he is lying on the bed and getting whipped to death in this town, and the town is called Lago, and... Uh, the man, and you don't, you can't see who the man is, although it's not, doesn't seem like it's Clint Eastwood. Uh, says, "Help me, help me!" to the townspeople, and none of the townspeople help him. Hmm. He says, "Damn you all to hell!" So next morning he wakes up. People are starting to give him some respect now, including a dwarf named Mordechai. The, the town law officer says, look, we have these three people who we kind of railroaded, we kind of framed, and they're coming back to this town to get revenge. Can you help us? Clearly you're handy with the gun. Can you help us defend ourselves? Can you help us defend the, the town? And first he's reluctant, but then he says, I'll do it if you do everything I say. And so they all say yes. And he is, and then he just embarks on this project of humiliating every single town's person in there in just unfathomable ways. Now, like the woman who he raped, it's funny that this isn't at, like that the Straw Dogs has a more controversial kind of scene than this, where in some ways, like here, it's more clear and more objectionable that. He raped her, and she seems to really like him at the end, just because she he's more of a man than the like anybody in that town. But everybody in that town sort of gets their comeuppance for what they did, essentially looking the other way when uh, their marshal, the marshal who was supposed to protect them before, was getting whipped to death by these three people. 
And in the end, he turns that town into a version of hell. It's actually like he gets them all to paint it red. He crosses out Lago and puts hell on the sign. And in the end, you get the sense that he's kind of an avenging angel. Angel, And at, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's the opposite of revenge porn. Somewhere right. in the movie, it probably depends on which person. You just like this is awful. What he's doing, this is terrible. Whatever they did, right. I, I, it's not fun to watch them being brought down like this. But what? that's the movie, and it's and it's great. Oh, and yeah. and I don't know, like it's it's definitely ambiguous. But you do get the sense that he is that guy come back from right. the dead. Right, right, right. So um, there is something about, I, I think, that maybe is one of the reasons that revenge is troubling is because, I don't know if it's objectively the case or not, but we often think that there, revenge run wild has a real problem of calibration, right? So I think that one distinction that you might make between just justice and revenge is that revenge you you have there is this sort of fear that if you unleash somebody to start vengeance um that that they will not know quite when to stop again i don't know if that's that's just generally true but i mean this is what blood feuds turn into um i i don't it's not that many of these guys in this town don't have this coming to them that they don't deserve it that's not what makes us recoil at the revenge Maybe they do have it coming, but it's still just really hard to watch. It still doesn't, it still seems like it can't be, this can't be a virtuous guy that's doing this to (laughs) them, even if it is what they deserve. And Uh, I haven't seen the movie, but is one of the reasons why it's hard to stomach just because it seems to come from an evil guy? Like, no, he's not evil exactly. It's like I really you should see it. I think you would like it. You know, I guess he does do some abhorrent things, but you always get the sense that the people he's doing them to aren't innocent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's it reminds me of a few sort of um, characters and I'm thinking, I guess, in, in comics, there there are a few characters who are sort of neutral agents of a vengeful God. Yeah. So they are just like, um, and there's one in particular from a, a comic book called Preacher. Um, oh, yeah. Where there is just this character that is, he's very much sort of Clint Eastwoody. His family was brutally murdered, and he is just used uh, as the pure instrument of bringing death to evildoers and yeah. with just no regard for like the good or badness of it just that's his job and he was just so good at it that god essentially made him um invincible so my number four um I, i'm surprised i haven't talked about it when i think about it but it is one of my favorite movies of all time that's tombstone um now i've tombstone, never seen it. Oh, tombstone somehow. So good. somehow it's based on the story of Wyatt Earp, as are many, many Westerns. Um, and it's not, you, you wouldn't call it a revenge movie. It's just that the, that the story of Wyatt Earp and the gunfight at the OK Corral and all of these events that actually really happened at, at the sort of turn of the century, Old West, um, that have become legend and, and folklore, um, 
that that really all of the early westerns were you know so many of them were based on the story of Wyatt Earp and the story is basically Wyatt Earp was a lawman who moved to this mining town in Tombstone Arizona um try, he had been a lawman and was trying to get out of it right he was he didn't want to be uh, anymore but he sort of gets dragged back into it because there is a group of outlaws called the cowboys again this is all historically true cattle thieves and they are um tyrants pretty much so he ends up getting sort of recruited by his brother there are three erp brothers and uh, their friend doc holiday as doc val kilmer as doc holiday just nails it he even talks shit in latin with one of the other villains it's great doc holiday was a, a actually a dentist um but he was a gambler and a gunslinger and the story as the story goes there was a gunfight um, where the Earp brothers tried to enforce the law that they were that you wouldn't be allowed to carry guns in town, and it erupted in a gunfight. This is the famous gunfight at the OK Corral that if you go to Tombstone, Arizona nowadays, they reenact it every single day. Really caused a feud between the Earp brothers and the McClary brothers, which were this cowboy gang. And what happened is that the Earp uh, in retaliation for this gunfight where one of the, the McClary brothers was killed, um, the McClary's killed one of the Earp brothers and injured another one. And Wyatt Earp went on this now famous tear of vengeance. And by all accounts, he was a badass. Um, like he just, he like by all accounts of the witnesses at the OK Corral, he just got up and just walked firing bullets straight into into a hail of gun of of a gunfire aimed at him basically he said anybody wearing the cowboy colors they would wear these red bandanas will kill on the spot and he went i don't know how many people he killed but he went on this tear and we've celebrated it as a culture this is yeah. like why why it erps famous and it turns out that when you look at some of the you know a lot of this has been filtered by the media that ended up telling the story but it's not uh, but it's not at all clear <laughs> that 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 the Earp brothers weren't also assholes who maybe unjustifiably had killed uh, some people. But you can't help but root for them, man. There is the ending scene where he's just going on this tear, and you're like, "Yes, kill them all, motherfuckers! Die, die, die!" Yeah. And part of it is because it's so distant from anything that's happened now. Um, but at the time, he had the sheriffs after him trying to stop him from this but it is the probably the most historically accurate account of the uh, tombstone events um, but also just really really well done you got to watch it. okay my number four is takes place in the present well 1999 when it came out and it is the limey steven soderbergh's the limey have you seen that uh you know i don't think i've ever actually seen the whole thing this is a great movie, a totally entertaining movie. It's also like 90 minutes. It's starring Terrence Stamp, the British actor, very famous uh, 60s British actor, Luis Guzman, Peter Fonda. So the revenge story, it, on the surface, seems like it couldn't be more straightforward. Uh, a man, this is Terrence Stamp, uh, comes to America to avenge the death of his daughter. Like, what could be more righteous? What could be more sort of obvious what you're rooting for? Um, his daughter, a beautiful girl, had been the girlfriend of Peter Fonda, who is this corrupt, aging, American hippie generation music producer. 
you get the sense early on that the reason she died, although it's supposedly an accident, that he had he he was behind it. Um, and Terence Stamp, an ex-con from England, and he goes on a kind of an ass-kicking spree to get to Peter Fonda. But as the story progresses, you realize that revenge here, the avenge for the Avenger is serving in some ways to cover up his own faults and his own moral shortcomings. And interestingly, his moral shortcomings towards the person he's supposed to be avenging, his daughter. And so what ends up happening and what the, the hero ends up realizing is the Avenger and the target of revenge have a lot in common in terms of how they wronged his daughter. And although you're always rooting for Terrence Stamp, so it's not like High Plains Drifter in the sense that you find yourself conflicted on whether you're rooting for him or not, you're not. Like, you're rooting for him. He's, he's awesome, and he, lo- he clearly loved his daughter. You can tell, and he comes to realize, that the reason she was even in this situation where she was susceptible to this older guy who ends up killing her uh, is because of him. It's because of Terrence Stamp. And him coming to realize that and how he, I'm not going to spoil it, but because I think not a lot of people have seen this, um, him coming to realize that and how that figures into his revenge is really interesting. It's also just a thoroughly entertaining movie. This is like a great movie to watch if you're hungover and you just want (laughs) to like a worthy way to pass the time. But it's also just an incredible exercise in filmmaking. It's like really cool experimental filmmaking, everything about it. I love this movie. I, okay. I'm going to do, I think quick work of this one but I'm putting it as my number uh, three because of your mention of Luis Guzman. Because this is a movie that makes a point about revenge, but is not really a revenge movie. And it is Brian De Palma's Carlito's Way. Um, Mm. um, And this is going to be spoiler heavy. So really, this movie is about a, a, a former criminal, played by Al Pacino, who comes out of prison. I love the movie, but I also I think there's just part of the like the sort of 90s rap adoration of Brian De Palma and <laughs> is is what makes me love this movie. Um, well justified. So Carlito is a is a Puerto Rican guy. So Pacino, you know, in one De Palma movie is a Cuban guy, and this one he's a Puerto Rican guy. Comes out of prison, is trying to you know trying to get his life straight, but uh, but gets pulled back in because his cousin wants to just do a, just do a real quick thing, real quick drug deal. Uh, and so he has to like get right back in the game. There is a scene in which Carlito, who has fame in his neighborhood as being this big time guy who was just famous in the neighborhood, even though he went to, to prison for a while, he comes back out and uh, this this young cat from the neighborhood who's trying to be an up and coming baller himself uh, tries to introduce himself, buy, buy him a bottle at the club. Uh, Benny Blanco is his name. Benny Blanco from the Bronx, yeah. um, played by John Leguizamo, who's in he's great. a gazillion movies. Yeah, he's also great. Um, and and uh, he he gets Hollywooded by Carlito. Car- Carlito just says, hey, get out of here, kid. You bother me. Like, I, I don't want your wine. Just leave me alone. Um, and that's kind of it. And in some ways, this is a, a cheap trick for a movie to play on you. Um, yeah. But I the reason that I 
don't think that it's cheap is because life in that world does, in fact, work this way. So um, the movie opens with Carlito already kind of on his deathbed. It's a very noir kind of way of telling the story is Carlito just narrating it from, from his deathbed. And then you see the events that led up to this. And you think, of course, Sunset it's Boulevard. Be Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> and you think that it's going to be uh, that his death was caused by the events that are driving the plot for the movie. But in fact, no, just as he's about to get away from the bad guys that have been the bad guys for the whole movie, it's just Benny Blanco who didn't appreciate that slight. And he says, yeah. remember me? I'm Benny Blanco from the Bronx. And just pop, pop. One of the reasons that I put on this list is, in my head canon, Leguizamo, the Benny Blanco character, has built up this story of his being slighted by this guy. And it is so utterly central to his story and his mind that he's going to go and find this guy and kill him. When the reality is Carlito didn't give a fuck about the kid the first time he met him, probably barely remembers him when he gets killed. And that's a kind of revenge that I think happens. Um, yeah, well, this is and, old boy, right? Like old boy is, is all about these things yeah, that yeah, yeah. for the person who committed the crime to be avenged or the so-called quote unquote crime, they don't even remember it. It's like that's no the big, part that's of their the life. That's the biggest insult, right? Yeah. And that's <laughs> the biggest insult. Exactly. <laughs> that is the biggest insult. You, ru you ruined my entire life and you don't even remember me. Remember me? Benny Blogger from the Bronx. All right. So. And I think you're right. And especially in that life, and this is part of the problem with the life, as much as some who I won't name try to romanticize and glamorize <laughs> the life of the honor-loving gangster, <laughs> that a lot of lives end because of perceived disrespect. Yeah. I have a tie for number three, but uh, I have a reason for my tie, and I'm just going to let you, you choose... I've Which never one I talk about? I'm only going to talk about one of them. So, <laughs> and I and I have a good reason for having a tie. So, here's what I think would be my number three if I was doing this. However, it was it's an RSTLNE movie. It's Kill <laughs> okay. Bill Volume uh, One. Yeah, yeah. We could talk a little bit about Kill Bill because right. I, I feel. So let's feel just like talk it. about that. The other one was True Grit. If you didn't let me do, yeah, that, that Kill you're Bill. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. True, true uh, Grit would have been on mine. I, I, I was almost sure it would be on yours. And I I feel like I've talked about True Grit already yeah, on this yeah, podcast. Yeah. So Kill Bill, I happened to just watch this with Eliza. I, th I think it's her favorite Tarantino movie, and we watch it again. It, yeah. it is appropriate, actually. <laughs> strong female character. A few strong female characters. Well, yeah, a number of strong female characters. All those strong characters... Are, are women in yeah. the first uh, in the first movie, including Gogo, who I to this day I still just I still mourn that she lost to Uma Thurman. <laughs> I don't think it's the only time I was rooting strong. against Uma Thurman is for Gogo. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but um, so that so she she wakes up. She's been <laughs> she's been shot in the head um, while pregnant at this chapel. That's all you know about in the first by her. What you imagine is uh, ex-boyfriend, lover, whatever, and she goes on a vengeance spree after waking up from four years in a coma. Wakes up getting raped. Right? Yeah, like or almost yeah. getting raped, right? Or almost getting raped, yeah. Yeah. Get, she gets a little mini <laughs> vengeance on yeah, those guys, those great. sleazy guys, and then goes to 
the home of one of the assassins that tried to kill her. She's, but then she goes to Japan, convinces a man who has sworn a blood oath not to make any more swords, Hattori Hanzo, to make a Hattori Hanzo sword. And then she goes to, uh, to get Lucy Liu, who's uh, a Yakuza gang leader, and she and just one of the great scenes of all time, that fight scene with the crazy 88, getting to um, Lucy Liu is just so incredible. So that's just the first volume, which is probably my favorite of the two, is just a kick-ass revenge story. The second part is, so now Michael Madsen, who is one of the uh assassins comes in and he says the movie starts out with him saying that woman deserves her revenge and we deserve to die yeah and then he says but then again she also deserves to die so let's just see what happens it's one of these things where like you know like there's you know there are some instances where i feel like you know you know i did something that deserves a punch in the face yeah but that doesn't mean I'm gonna just let someone punch me in the face, <laughs> right? That doesn't mean that I that it, that that I'm just gonna let it happen. And, and we well, don't one, begrudge Michael Madsen in the movie for defending himself, although the particular way he chooses to then go about trying to kill her is uh, is a little objectionable, bearing yeah, he, her alive. He is without honor. Is, yeah. I, I actually don't think that's true. Like from his point of view, he's doing that because he she broke his brother's heart even though he he, you know his brother and him are estranged daryl hannah is the one without honor she's the one without honor yeah Yeah. she kills the teacher the tutor she kills uh bud michael madsen character and that's the one like watching with eliza she was like i hate her she and that's the only one you unambiguously hate even yeah. you know lucy lou you don't un- unambiguously hate go go well, you're actively Lou, that, rooting for that animated little yeah. short in the middle you know it's like oh, how can man. you yeah one of the things that makes volume one amazing is the rizza does the soundtrack for it and just the music in that battle scene with it uh-huh. it's it's just amazing and music so, throughout all of it is incredible yeah um so i'm gonna piggyback on that and give you my number Two, um, which again, I don't know that it would be called a revenge film, but it's a film that I love. This is a film I've seen so many times, and it was Riza's. Riza did the, it was his, his his first take at doing the entire score, and it's an amazing score, and just fucking good music. But it's uh, Jim Jarmusch's Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. Have you uh, seen this? Yeah. Long time ago, I don't remember it. Uh, one of my favorite movies, and this is essentially uh, a modern day telling of a samurai uh, movie and it's Forrest Whitaker who is this sort of loner um, hitman for the mafia um, and as th- the story progresses you realize what happened so one day he was uh, Forrest Whitaker character was getting attacked um, and he was saved by an Italian mobster just one of these like real real like you know stereotypical you know yeah. sopranos sweatsuit wearing uh, guys <laughs> who actually pulls out his gun and saves his life he would have gotten killed by by these attackers and he dedicates himself to base basically he's in the retainer for this guy so this guy is his he, he has loyalty and he follows the code of bushido and he reads you know he reads the samurai text um yeah. and uh and just does contract killings for the mob one of those killings, he has to kill a maid man. 
So he goes in and he kills a made man, which shouldn't be happening, but he does. And um, it turns out that the big mafia boss's daughter was in the house. She was hanging out with this other made man and she sees him and he doesn't have the heart to kill her in cold blood. So, uh, so he lets her go. Well, this means that people will know that that a hitman killed the yeah. maid man. And so the mafia boss tells Louis, who's the, the guy who had saved Ghost Dog's life, he, he tells Louis that he has to get rid of Ghost Dog. Basically, you have to kill your hitman. So he's a little torn by this, but he realizes this is what he has to do. So they make an attempt on his life. And this at this point is where Ghost Dog decides... He has no option other than to take out the entire mob. <laughs> so it's just sort of... So it's like John Wick. It's, it's, but it's not... The tone of the movie is more like Rashomon than it is like right. John Wick. It's this piece. This guy has this sort of... This, he follows this code. He lives alone on... You know, he, he tends pigeons on the roof. He's only dedicated singularly to this guy, Louis. There's a, as a Jim Jarmusch can do, he sets this tone. And then there's this little girl that he, uh, that he sees in the park that he talks to every day and he gives her books. Um, yeah. A little Perline. And so it's a very, very touching movie. The other thing that this movie takes heavily from is uh, Le Samurai. <laughs> um, you know this movie? Le Samurai? Yeah. Le Samurai. It's, it's a movie in 1967 from uh, Jean-Pierre Melville. It's an amazing French noir, um, but in the 60s, about this sort of lone, loner You're doing killer. it. You're hipster. Uh, thing. I don't know I anything know, about I movies. Know. I'm just <laughs> a caveman. And then you come, you come up yeah, with Le Samurai by Jean-Louis Melville. <laughs> it's, you would love it, actually, Le Samurai. Um, my number two, many of our listeners maybe haven't seen this movie. It's Blue Ruin by... Uh, directed by Jeremy Saunier, really uh, young, talented young director. He came, he did Green Room from this past year. Uh, Blue Ruin, I think, is 2013. Four, 13. Um, it stars Macon Blair. It is a movie that asks us to imagine what it would be like to really get revenge if you were just a guy, you're not Uma Thurman, you're not a samurai, you're not like a killer, you're not, you know, con, you're just a guy. And you actually have to go and get revenge. You have to figure out how to do that. He's like this homeless guy. These people have killed his parents and then being awoken by cops, the cops telling him, look, these people are about to get out of prison uh, and I thought you should know that. And him getting revenge and then the first 20 minutes of the movie he kills one of the people who he thinks killed his parents but the whole thing is just so messy and hard and awkward and clumsy and it's in some ways it's not an anti-revenge movie for sure. it's not like you th- you you watch it and you realize oh revenge is like bad and you should never get it and it just won't solve anything and it's that you realize just like that it's it's not clean whatever it is good or bad it's it's messy and it's hard and just you like getting it right and it being really satisfying 
that's movies, that's not real life. And this is like, you get the sense that this is much more like real life revenge. When real people are getting revenge (laughs) on real people, not superheroes and they're not trained assassins, they're just people. It's like, I I don't know who you are, but I don't have any particular set of skills. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Skills (laughs) I have not acquired over any of my life. I may find you and I may kill you. And if I do find you and you don't, then I'll try my best to kill you. But I'll probably bungle it the first few times and get seriously injured, try to heal myself, but end up like stumbling to a hospital. Uh, it's just great. First of all, this director is like, he's definitely one of these people that, oh, when he comes out with his next movie, I'm going to be very excited because every one of his movies, his, this was his second movie. Green Room was his third. It's I've uh, never seen either. All of these those. movies are like low budget genre, not masterpieces. I would say this one and Green Room are genre just excellences. And again, I think that's the part of Revenge because Revenge is such a classic story because there's such a... Right. There's such a formula. Just showing it stripped of all its romance right. is uh, so it's 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 not ambiguous in the same way that like High Plains Drifter is because that's still a very stylized, heightened reality of revenge. This is just revenge is just a, a mess. It is it is funny how how much revenge can get romanticized, and it's not clear to me why. I mean. Like for reasons we've discussed many, many times, it's obvious that we're probably selected for desiring this kind of thing, and right. Yeah. But it's not. It, but that doesn't mean that it would be stylized the way that we. It has these these classic structures. It is very much like a romance film, right? Yeah. Like in both in both cases, you have something that's probably just really deep part of human nature, and in real life, it's way messier. <laughs> Like, sometimes you think, like, why do we keep making movies that make romance seem so awesome? Like, it's a really, really messy, hard-to-navigate thing to have two people. And so uh, this is, like, and I think this this is rarer with revenge movies than romance movies, is really getting at the nitty-gritty of yeah. what it actually involves. And that's what right. Blue Ruin does. That's what makes it kind of a special movie, I think. Right. Because the truth is, most of us have the, you know, at least the potential to be involved in romance, and most of us will never be involved in, you know, some blood feud. Um, but if we um, had to, we would probably be very messy. I will, and the next co-host that you cho- choose, I'm going to be come <laughs> back know? from the dead, from humiliate the him <laughs> or her. What? Uh, yeah, it's just I just pictured you sort of. Well, no, forget it. Um, no, I'm the little... one that's getting whipped. <laughs> oh, that's right. There's a no context for you. <laughs> <laughs> who is that VBW no context? Do you know who uh, it is? I have no idea. I haven't yeah. even tried to find out because I don't want to. So <laughs> I don't know how you would try to find out. I would find uh, out. I have a you... very particular set of skills. <laughs> <laughs> I can find out what porn you watched last night. Um, uh, okay. Good, right? So <laughs> it's good. It's really good. <laughs> Um, my number one. This de- yeah. this deserves to be number one. Um, yeah. This this uh, this ranking means something. The big heat. Now, this does make it on everybody's list. Is this on why? Is it? 
No, it's, it's just kind yeah. of a. It's not. It's a little bit of a hipster pick. It, uh, but but you know you know my like in the last four years you know my love for noir you know how yeah, it's done I do yeah um and and in fact I just rewatched it like today and uh-huh. it, I and I loved it it's a noir technically like what, however people define noir but it's Fritz Lang and it's uh, in 1953 Glenn Ford Gloria Graham who gives an amazing performance uh, Marlon Brando's sister and ugly ass Lee Marvin who is even uglier as a young man. <laughs> It's like the perfect film. He's great, Perfect face. Yeah, face for radio. So it's the story about a cop. Almost half of the movie doesn't even involve his revenge. Um, But basically, there is a town that is run completely corruptly by a mob boss. So he clearly has all the police in his his back pocket. Um, Except for this is a, a clean cop. One of the cops dies by suicide. And turns it turns out, again, spoilers, uh, that his suicide note was essentially a big confession implicating all of the the corruption that had been that had been going on. Um, and so if that if that confession got into the hands of, say, the newspapers, it would have completely destroyed the mob boss and all of the the syndicate that was running the town. So the widow of that cop, who killed himself, decides to blackmail the mob. And so she's getting a big payoff. She's clearly, like, not a nice person. Um, this cop, who's a clean cop, so he starts investigating what's going on because this does, seems to be something wrong. Um, yeah. And in the process, he uh, he talks to a young lady who then ends up dead the next day. Tortured, dead, thrown over a freeway, cigarette burns on her body. Um this is distressing to him, but he keeps pressing ahead. Ends up uh, uh, talking to Lee Marvin, who is the sort of number two crony. In the process of his investigation, they decide that they're going to take. It's unclear. I think they try. They're trying to take him out. They plant a bomb in his car, and it kills his wife. So that is like literally like not, maybe a third to one halfway through the movie. Um, yeah, and that's where the sort of revenge starts. Now. I won't go through like the entire plot. It's a noir, so there's lots of stuff going on. The cop, who seems like this straight, straight edge, you know, I'm going to do the right thing cop. He, the complexity of this movie is that he's actually just using people in order to solve his case in a way that I don't find him very likable. I think he actually puts right. people in harm's way just to solve this, right? Um, and in fact, you know, like three people die because he he asked them, you know, to help him out. Um, there's another really great thing that I think came from this movie, which is it doesn't have the traditional femme fatale of noir. In fact, all of the men are cowards. So when he's trying to find help at first, everybody in the town um, is afraid to point fingers at the mob boss. The only people who are willing to actually talk to him are the first woman who ends up dead, the girlfriend, who this uh, um, Gloria Graham, who's this amazing performance. She's willing to stick her neck out and give information. And this little old woman um, who who is at one of the car shops where he's investigating who might have planted the bomb. The guy who owns the car shop is unwilling to, to stick his neck out and, and give any information for fear of being killed. And it's this little old woman who gives him the information. And he kind of just uses her for the information. Um, so you don't get the sense that this is a good, a great guy. Um, but 
but nonetheless, clearly, like his his wife was killed, and he has a little daughter who's who's in th- under threat. The themes are amazing. I think this is just a lot deeper than most noirs. Um, the the way in which he just he uses people to get the information with little regard to their safety. Amazing imagery by Fritz Lang. It's all. It's not even clear that he's really doing this because he's so emotionally disturbed. You yeah, know? it's just like a goal. Well, there's a kind of righteous revenger that if you don't feel like the feelings are aligned properly, then yeah. it doesn't matter if like justice is served. That's right. It's like, yeah. It's very, very, very not about outcome and is, is like a lot of revenge being good or bad or satisfying or not is about the nature of the characters involved, their motives and the way, yeah. the way, yeah, their feelings. Um, the, yeah, the avenger that, seems to be doing it out of pure duty now this isn't and uh, but not even duty but some like it can somehow sometimes seem self-serving and not for the person that's supposed to be avenged and then it doesn't matter if the people have it coming it's like you don't have a right to do this anymore yeah and it's actually even like his singular focus on sort of following the rules in a way that doesn't feel that deep yeah. is is evident by the fact that he's sort of on this mission to uncover this mob boss because he actually just doesn't like the guys. Like he just just seems to like he just is bothered by them. He he yeah. hates those mob guys, and his motivation doesn't really uh, change that much after his wife dies. Like he was just kind of the same before and kind of the same after. I mean, you know, he's he's clearly loves her and that has plays an important role, but you don't get the sense that he would have done that much different. Had, had she not died. My number one, also I think just deserves to be number one. The RSTLNE ruled out Old Boy, but it didn't rule out all the movies in the Vengeance trilogy. <laughs> I was going to ask you if it did or not. And I think the best movie, as much as I love Old Boy, but I think the best movie is Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Also directed and written by Park Chan-wook. Um, we have talked about how people misunderstand revenge. They think that their avenger is doing it for themselves to get fulfillment or to get satisfaction or to get... Uh, but it's it's not about... the in, in, in many cases of revenge and in many cases of revenge that we think are, you know, satisfying acts of revenge, it has nothing to do with the avenger it has to do with the person they're avenging or the group yeah. they're avenging or like it's it's that it's that relation that is the thing that should motivate the act of revenge so whether or not the avenger feels satisfied or the avenger feels relief or closure and all that is totally not the point right the point we, is yeah i paid no, I, my debt exactly we've talked and we talked about this but it was a long time ago but i think it's worth yeah. saying again like there is this way in which people say like but you won't feel happier at the end. No, motherfucker, I wasn't doing it to feel happy. I never was doing it to feel happy. And like, unless you have some really, really strict but probably false view of hedonism and what that is, it's like, I accept that I might actually be more miserable at the end of this. I might feel more empty, but that's not why I'm doing it, clearly. That's right. So this movie takes that idea, I think, to its extreme. So here's the plot. And this is bare bones. I'm going to try not to spoil it. I also think this is one that many of our listeners won't have seen. Um, I, I haven't either. 
Never. You haven't seen this movie? No. Okay. Well, then I definitely won't spoil it. <laughs> so the story centers around this very sweet Korean. He's deaf, uh, kind of hipster in the way that Koreans can, like young Koreans can be. He needs to get a kidney for his sister. His sister will die unless he can get a kidney. Um, he tries to sell his own kidney on the black market, but ends up just losing his kidney um, and not getting any of the money because the people who were buying the kidney Sucks. were con artists. He then gets fired from his job. And then as a last kind of desperate measure, the boss who fired him has a daughter and his anarchist girlfriend says, we should kidnap that daughter. We'll kidnap her. We'll get money. We'll pay for your sister's kidney and, um, and then like give the daughter back. And so they embark on doing that. But by mistake, they don't kidnap the daughter. They kidnap her friend. Okay, so they do. Also, very rich family. They can blackmail him, too. Not blackmail, but just, you know, hold the daughter hostage. The anarchist girlfriend and him treat the girl really well. Like, she, she, she's loving it while with them. However, they go out to this lake and through just a series of accidents she ends up dying and she dies because she's he's deaf and can't hear her in the water and the father again now this isn't the boss who fired him unjustly this is just a guy a rich guy um swears to get revenge on these people who killed their daughter and over the course of the movie it becomes clear to him and it becomes like and it's always been clear to us that this isn't a bad guy that this is just the circumstances of this uh, event are just tragic. Like this guy was doing what he felt he had to do to help his sister and had nothing but good intentions to the daughter, Uh, was horrified that the daughter ended up dead, had treated her really well, and that was just in general a good-hearted person. And yet the Avenger, the father, feels like this act of vengeance has to get done, not for me, not because I have animosity, towards this person but it's like a debt that has to be paid to my daughter and i have to do it and again i'm not going to say what happens or how it all works out but it's a it's it's that idea of this isn't about me being happier he's clearly not going to be happier once he's committed the right. act of revenge he doesn't he he doesn't even he like he feels bad about having to do it to this right. guy but he still feels like it has to be done and it's an interesting question why does he feel right. that and why do we understand to some degree and i'm sure some listeners will say will will, will disagree that he had any reason to kill this person um but i think most viewers of this movie will understand that there is something even if they don't think ultimately it's the right decision there's something that would feel off if he didn't get revenge for uh, a purely accidental act uh, made by an otherwise good person in desperate circumstances and I don't even like. I don't even feel like we one has to defend the sort of the normative. You could very well say that this is an error of a, like a whatever. This is a quirk of our brains, or whatever. But that that doesn't mean that people don't feel it, and that doesn't even mean that um, right. It's that they don't have reason to do it. I can understand the people like if you're coming from another planet or coming from just just not feeling this and just not feeling this in your bones like we talk about this debt that has to be paid to his daughter what does that mean his daughter is dead 
and yeah. it, so what and she was yeah. five but like it's not like she's like daddy you have to kill this this man and you know like and like her soul is in hades and she won't like you know be at peace yeah. unless like it's none of that and yet we still feel comfortable talking about this debt without being able to articulate what that could possibly be or what how, how to make sense of that right. you know and so it right. is interesting like i i totally understand when people say that it's totally irrational and ridiculous at the same time it is as you say so deep a part of our psychology right i mean there is a way in which you know things like love and things like having children you know there's it doesn't mean that that people don't feel this and you know but it's does, it's but, one of these yeah. things that's very hard to articulate why you feel it sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a brute. Um, it's a kind of brute feeling. And it's sort of mysterious why some people don't, like <laughs> yeah. why some people feel ready to forgive, right? Like some people are super willing to forgive. Yeah. All right. Well, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Dave will be with a new co-host, Paul Bloom, possibly Sam Harris, hopefully Lori Santos.